Dogs will drink puddles on the ground when they have a full bowl inside, because in that brief moment of thirst, they forget there is any other option. Whatever is closest tastes just as pure, even if it is full of dirt. I think this must be why I lap up whatever is closest to love in those brief moments I thirst for it, even when it feels like rocks going down, even when the muddy substitute never quenches me. It tastes as pure as it ever did at home, where my bowl has always been empty. My ACE score is a 9 out of 10. ACE stands for Adverse Childhood Experiences. There was a study done on the most common childhood traumas and the lifelong effects of these on the people who experienced them. Every experience is worth one point. The test goes as follows. 1. Did a parent or other adult in the household often, or very often, swear at you, insult you, put you down, or humiliate you, or act in a way that made you afraid that you might be physically hurt? 2. Did a parent or other adult in the household often, or very often, push, grab, slap, or throw something at you, or ever hit you so hard that you had marks or were injured? 3. Did an adult or person at least five years older than you ever touch you or fondle you or have you touch their body in a sexual way or attempt or actually have oral, anal, or vaginal intercourse with you? 4. Did you often or very often feel that no one in your family loved you or thought you were important or special or your family didn't look out for each other feel close to each other, or support each other. 5. Did you often or very often feel that you didn't have enough to eat, had to wear dirty clothes, had no one to protect you, or your parents were too drunk or high to take care of you or take you to the doctor if you needed it? 6. Were your parents ever separated or divorced? 7. Was your mother or stepmother often or very often pushed, grabbed, slapped, or had something thrown at her, or sometimes often or very often kicked, bitten, hit with a fist, or hit with something hard, or ever repeatedly hit over at least a few minutes or threatened with a gun or knife? 8. Did you live with anyone who was a problem drinker or alcoholic? Or who used street drugs. 9. Was a household member depressed or mentally ill, or did a household member attempt suicide? 10. Did a household member go to prison? The Adverse Childhood Events, or ACE study, was a landmark study conducted from 1995 to 1997 on childhood trauma experiences in 17,000 421 participants who were mostly white, middle-class, middle-aged, well-educated, and financially secure. The ACE study irrefutably showed 
the long-term negative physical, emotional, and behavioral effects of child abuse across the lifespan. The study made a direct connection between the ACE score, a tally of those adverse childhood experiences, and risk for health problems. They found that ACEs were incredibly common. 67% of the population had at least one ACE. They found that one in every eight participants had four or more ACEs. Studies done on people with high ACE scores have shown that people with six or more ACEs on average died 20 years earlier than those who had none. The CDC and Kaiser Permanente found that these exposures to childhood trauma dramatically increased the risk for seven out of 10 of the leading causes of death in the United States. An ACE score of four or more increases your risk of chronic lung disease by 390%, hepatitis by 240%, depression by 460%, and suicide by 1,220%. There is a 5,000% increased likelihood of suicide attempts from zero to an ACE score of six. Adults with an ACE score of four were seven times more likely to be an alcoholic. With an ACE score of six or more, the likelihood of IV drug use was 4,600% greater than for those with a score of zero. Chronic illnesses directly correlating to high ACE scores is being called the silent epidemic. ACEs are the gravest and most costly public health issue in the United States, said Dr. Robert Anda, who worked on the ACE study. In a powerful TED Talk about the ACE study, Nadine Burke-Harris explained how trauma changes you physiologically. She said that in this study, they found that early exposure to adversity changes the developing brains and bodies of children, impacting them for the rest of their lives. The nucleus accumbens, the pleasure and reward center in the brain, which is responsible for tendency toward addiction, was deeply affected. Trauma inhibits the prefrontal cortex, which is necessary for impulse control and executive function. This is also a critical area for learning. MRI scans showed significant differences between the amygdalas of those with ACEs and those with none. This is the brain's fear response center. There were real neurological reasons behind those with trauma engaging in more high-risk behaviors, leading to these health consequences. They also found that even without engaging in these high-risk behaviors, those with significant ACE scores were still more likely to develop cancer and heart disease. The reason for this is that the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis responsible for the body's fight-or-flight response is also significantly impacted by trauma. Burke Harris explains that if you are in a forest and there is a bear, this part of your body releases adrenaline and cortisol, allowing you to either fight the bear or run from it, which is great if you're in a forest and there's a bear. What's not so great is when the bear comes home every night and this system is activated over and over and over again. It goes from becoming life-saving to maladaptive and damaging to the body. So. I'm doomed, right? Doomed to be unhealthy, 
to die young, to probably kill myself. My score is a nine, not a four, not a six, a nine. If anyone is at risk, I am. When I started looking into these statistics, I was devastated. I dwelled on it. My health problems, my addictions, my mental health issues, all of them directly correlated to me being a statistic. I couldn't shake it. So what do you do with this information? What do you do with the knowledge that you've been doomed by your childhood experiences, something completely out of your control? You go to fucking therapy. You talk about your shit. You face it. I know that therapy sounds absolutely terrible to most people who've never been in it. Talking to a complete stranger about your deepest, darkest secrets. Opening up about things you've worked damn hard to repress for the majority of your life. You've built walls around yourself out of secrecy, painted them in wine, and locked the door to hide all the other things you don't want the neighbors to see. You've stuffed down these ugly old feelings under a pile of vices and defense mechanisms, developed a dark sense of humor to mask the effort you're forever putting into not crying. And somewhere along the line, you figured out that people don't really want the truth when they ask how you're doing. So you stopped answering. I'm fine. Making it. Doing good. But when you find the right therapist, it's the most freeing thing in the world. You slowly pull down those walls, one vice, one defense mechanism, one brick full of shame at a time. You open up and find yourself feeling lighter. You open your mouth and suddenly start finding that the truth climbs out of your throat on its own, desperate to be seen and heard. You find that it was a cancer growing inside you with every moment of silence. And you find that in the right hands, that truth can be used to cure you. Some of the trauma I've talked about here I've never spoken about before, not even in therapy, and I went balls to the wall and posted it all to the internet. My truth lies somewhere in between those nine aces. My parents never went to prison, but the SWAT team raided my house when my stepfather pulled out a gun and threatened to use it. I was in a drug bust at their best friend's house at 13 years old, interrogated and put in the back of a cop car. I was left at strangers' houses all the time while my parents were chasing their high. They often told me to hide under my bed and not come out no matter what I heard. I can only assume because they owed someone money or the meth-induced paranoia had taken over. They provided me with alcohol as a child. The police were always at my house, but they never went to prison. When I told Mackenzie about this, she told me I might as well give myself that 10th point. I almost had a perfect score. Such an overachiever. The ACE study, in its original form, did not account for every possible childhood trauma. It didn't account for watching a sibling or grandparent being abused. It didn't account for traumatic losses of household members or close loved ones. It didn't account for childhood bullying. 
It didn't account for being born in a skin color that placed a target on your back, living in a neighborhood overrun by crime, being born gay in a household full of homophobes, being placed in foster care, religious trauma, surviving a natural disaster, or having a parent abandon you. It only laid out the most common traumas. It didn't account for personal resiliency either, the impact of the love of a grandparent or aunt, the support of a positive friend group, religious group, or teachers. It didn't encompass everything that leads to the detriment or growth of a child. It was not a crystal ball. My stepsister called my mother one day when I was 18 after she and I had reconnected. She warned my mother that my stepfather had told her he wanted to kill me. He blamed me for their marriage failing, for everything falling apart in his life. He had a gun. I didn't know where he was living or if he could find me. My mother went to get an order of protection against him. She begged me to do the same, but that meant I would have to face him in court. I couldn't bear the idea of seeing him again. I was living in hiding, constantly afraid that he would show up where I was, that he would find me, that I would run into him at a store or restaurant. I stopped shopping. I stopped going out. I changed jobs, took on three jobs at a time to keep me busy and didn't go anywhere else, overcome with fear. I was so crippled with the fear that he would kill me if he got the chance, even in court. So, I didn't go. He never even showed up. My mother got her order of protection without ever seeing his face. I didn't. A few years later, I finally moved to a little college town an hour away where I have lived for most of the last nine years. I got a tiny one-bedroom apartment where I could barely afford to get the utilities turned on. But I was free. I could go to stores again. I could go out to eat. I could drive around town without fear of running into my stepfather. I could breathe. It wasn't long after I moved in there that I saw a man who looked like my stepfather while I was working in a little salon in the country. He rode in on a motorcycle, much like my stepfather once had. He had the same facial hair, a particular look that still triggers me to this day when I see it on the faces of strangers. He had the same build, the same hair, the same scowl. I remember running away at the sight of him. A new friend was there, saw me suddenly taking off, and found me. I was having a panic attack in a storage room. She asked me why. All I could tell her is that he looked like my ex-stepfather. She told me, It sounds like you had a childhood like mine. I asked her about her childhood, and she told me everything. She told me how her father had raped her for years, recorded it on film, shared her with strangers. She told me how she had shot him with a rifle. I couldn't even comprehend the trauma she had been through. 
I understood, but couldn't fully relate. These weren't my experiences. These were nightmare fuel, unbelievable terrors. I took this to mean that mine were not. That my experiences were less, were not as serious, were not that bad. I minimized my own trauma, invalidated it, convinced myself that I was just being dramatic. I gaslit myself. He had never raped me. More than anything, his sexual abuse was verbal. It was grooming. But it wasn't what she had been through. So I just needed to get over it, right? I spent years this way, convinced that my childhood wasn't that bad, wasn't that serious. Until the first time I filled out an ACE score test. I had just attempted to hang myself two days before. I went to the doctor the next day, and they gave me a suicide questionnaire. I passed with flying colors. Not the kind of test you want to make 100% on. They couldn't get me in with a psychiatrist that day, so they sent me in the following day after making me promise I wouldn't off myself in that time, that I would have someone with me at all times. My best friend sat outside waiting and wasn't going to allow me to be alone for even a moment until I got the help I needed. I was sitting in the psychiatrist's office the next morning filling out intake paperwork when I flipped to the ACE test. I had to check off all but one. 10. Did a household member go to prison? No. Naturally a very curious person, I googled the test and found the statistics. It hit me then that my childhood was not minorly traumatic. It was not less bad than anyone else's. My traumas were real, not able to be compared to those of someone else. I had a friend in high school say to me once, for one person, losing their puppy is the same as it is for another person losing their mom. You can't compare traumas. But I had. For years, I had. Minimizing your trauma isn't uncommon, by the way. It's incredibly normal to convince yourself that you are fine, that your experiences weren't that bad. This is a defense mechanism, a way for the brain to deal with the great grief that follows profound traumatic experiences. We normalize it to ourselves, gaslight ourselves, make it smaller so that we don't have to face the entire elephant in the room. Along with a slew of mental health problems and the issues my eating disorder has created, I have several health conditions as well. I was in the first grade when I passed out for the first time. I had just woken up, walked into the kitchen, felt my vision going black and hit my head on an open drawer. I fell into a laundry basket. My mother was there. She didn't take me to a doctor. Passing out became a regular thing for me. I remember being in high school and fainting all the time. I fainted during marching band practice frequently. I would see my vision blurring, feel what I can only describe as a fullness in my head, 
like cotton had been stuffed into it through my ears. And suddenly, I was on the ground, and people were surrounding me. My band director got on to me for not eating before practice. They rightly assumed I wasn't getting breakfast. When I reached adulthood, I went to doctors myself and had fasting glucose tests run on me, blood work drawn, and so many questions asked about my eating habits and health. Everything came back fine. There were no signs of hypoglycemia, but my doctor said that the symptoms fit. I went back to another doctor again in my early 20s when I fainted in beauty school. I had just eaten a high-carb meal, so I knew my blood sugar was fine. I told the doctor there was no way it was hypoglycemia. He drew labs, ran tests on me as the previous doctor had, and again found nothing. He told me that the symptoms fit. He put me on a diabetic diet and encouraged me to start eating small meals throughout the day. I struggled to make the diet work but complied because I was desperate to make the fainting stop. At 24, I started having this happen at work in the salon. By this point, I had learned to recognize when a blackout was coming on and could stop myself from hitting the ground, would have to sit down right away to stop it. I was feeling numbness and tingling in my legs constantly, like they were falling asleep while I was standing. My heart would race out of my chest, and often felt like I was having a heart attack. I was exhausted all the time, feeling like I had run a marathon when I had done the bare minimum all day. I would get dizzy while sitting down. I researched on my own and somehow came to the conclusion that I had multiple sclerosis. As a nurse now, I look back and don't understand how I ever came to that conclusion. But WebMD and I were convinced. I went to the doctor, already on the defensive before I stepped into the exam room. But there was an APRN this time, a woman, and she actually listened when I told her all the things that were going on with my body. She agreed that it didn't sound like hypoglycemia at all, suggested that it might be cardiac in nature, and sent me to a cardiologist for the first time. My first visit to the cardiologist was incredible. I had the only female doctor in town, and she listened thoughtfully to every word I said. When I finished, she told me that she might already know what I have going on, but wanted to run some tests to prove her hypothesis. She did an EKG, had me wear a heart monitor for a month, ordered an echocardiogram, and sent me to the hospital for a tilt table test. The tilt table test consisted of me laying on a table that lifted up to standing and laid back over and over, watching my blood pressure and heart activity at various angles. I didn't pass out, surprisingly, but saw my heart rate skyrocketing on the monitor and my blood pressure bottoming out. I was allergic to every adhesive they tried with my heart monitor, so I had to deal with constant rash and blisters on my chest for a month it would be worth it to hopefully get some answers. I had already suffered for this long. What were a few more weeks of suffering? After the longest month, 
I went back to the cardiologist's office, and she went over all my results. She told me that I have an autonomic disorder called postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome, a condition that causes an array of issues throughout the body. The autonomic nervous system controls things like your temperature regulation, your blood pressure, your heart rate, respiratory rate, metabolism, digestion, urination, and your fight-or-flight response. Everything that is not controlled by conscious effort is controlled by the ANS. And mine was broken. Postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome, better known as POTS, was the cause of my fainting spells, which were the product of my heart rate becoming tachycardic or exceeding 100 beats per minute while my blood pressure sank dramatically. The neuropathy feeling in my legs was caused by circulatory issues inside them. My exhaustion was because my heart was in fact running a marathon while the rest of me was just standing. I finally had an answer, a name for what I was going through. I wasn't going crazy. There was something very real going on in my body, and it had been going on my entire life without being addressed. She put me on diltiazem, a calcium channel blocker that would lower my heart rate and hopefully control the tachycardia. She also told me to dramatically increase my water intake and, get this, told me to eat more salt. Who gets told by their cardiologist to eat more salt? I actually usually ordered food with no salt and didn't salt my own food at home because my stepfather had always oversalted everything and I became opposed to the taste altogether. But this was an adjustment I could make. This was a diet I could live with. Unfortunately, the diltiasm didn't work. It made my dizziness worse, and I frequently blacked out on it. I had to stop taking it. My cardiologist told me to continue the salt and water, and we would go from there. And then I got pregnant. During my first trimester of pregnancy, I fainted once on an incredibly hot summer day when I had been exerting myself. Shortly after this episode, the symptoms stopped altogether. My cardiologist told me that it was due to increased blood volume. She told me that unless I started having issues again, I was released from her care into the hands of my OBGYN. I didn't have another symptom for five years. I stayed on the POTS support groups to offer my encouragement that it could resolve on its own, that there was hope for their futures. Pregnancy had cured me. I worked every day on my feet without dizziness or tingling in my legs. My heart raced only when I drank entirely too much caffeine. I went to nursing school and went on to become a nurse, living symptom-free. And then, around the time I graduated nursing school, they all came back, hitting me like a Mack truck. My tingling legs were back. My dizzy spells became an everyday ordeal. It hasn't stopped. My body responds dramatically to stress, to heat, to dehydration, to illness, 
it tries to force quit and put me on the floor. Some days while I'm working, I have to hunch over or simply sit myself down to stop the overwhelming feeling that I am about to pass out. I have warned my coworkers that if they ever find me in the floor, they better not call 911 or I will come up swinging. I just need to lie down, cool off, drink some water, and I'll be back in action in no time. It isn't life-threatening. It's just deeply disturbing. In my own research, I have found a link between POTS and trauma. Many of the people I see in my POTS support groups have discussed sudden onset of their symptoms after traumatic experiences and extreme stresses on the body. I've seen it hypothesized online that it may be linked to limbic damage. There is a direct correlation between the onset of POTS and brain or head injury, which I had many of in my childhood. That memory, the one that haunts me forever, of my stepfather slamming my head into the wall over and over. Could this have been the moment? Could my trauma have caused all of this? I don't know. Maybe I had some genetic predisposition to it. Maybe it was just luck of the draw. But the fact that I was already exposed to incredible stress and trauma as a young child and developed this condition in childhood does not go unnoticed by me. There is a book which I cannot recommend enough called The Body Keeps the Score. Brain, Mind, and Body in the Healing of Trauma by Dr. Bessel van der Kolk, a psychiatrist, neuroscientist, and one of the world's leading experts on traumatic stress. His groundbreaking book has been on the bestseller list for more than three years since its debut. In The Body Keeps the Score, van der Kolk explores the extreme disconnection from the body that so many people with histories of trauma and neglect experience and the effects of psychological trauma and how they literally reshape the body and brain. He discusses how exposure to abuse and violence fosters the development of a hyperactive alarm system and molds the body into one stuck in flight, fight, or freeze. Trauma interferes with the brain circuits that involve focusing, flexibility, and being able to stay in emotional control. A constant sense of danger and helplessness promotes the continuous secretion of stress hormones, which wreaks havoc on the immune system and the functioning of the body's organs. He proposes that the body itself stores psychological trauma and that the only way to lasting healing is to make a safe space for trauma victims to inhabit their bodies, to tolerate feeling what they feel and knowing what they know. This may involve a range of therapeutic interventions including various forms of trauma processing, neurofeedback, meditation, play, and yoga therapy. The body needs safety and healing from trauma as much as the mind does, because the body continues to relive it. The Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, known commonly as the DSM, once defined post-traumatic stress disorder by saying, the essential feature is the development of characteristic symptoms following a psychologically traumatic event 
that is generally outside the range of usual human experience. The characteristic symptoms involve re-experiencing the traumatic event, numbing of responsiveness to or reduced involvement with the external world, and a variety of autonomic, dysphoric, or cognitive symptoms. Van der Kolk reflects on this and states that they were, in fact, terribly wrong, that these were not unusual experiences at all. To quote Van der Kolk, trauma is ubiquitous in our society. Over 500,000 children are reported for abuse and neglect each year. One out of four Americans reports having been left with bruises after having been hit as a child. One out of five was sexually molested. One out of eight has witnessed severe domestic violence. And a quarter grew up with alcoholism or drug addiction. Almost every inmate in our prison system, by far the largest in the world, has a serious history of prior trauma. Half a million women are raped each year, half of them before they are adolescents. When the flashbacks come, and they come often, I physically feel it in my body. I feel heat rising in my cheeks. I feel a weight, a heaviness on my chest, tightness in my throat, a sinking feeling in the pit of my stomach. My body shakes uncontrollably. My heart races. I feel like I could throw up. I feel like I might faint. It's an experience full of body sensations. Sometimes my mind is completely back in that moment, vividly recalling every detail of the memory I'm lost in. Sometimes my mind simply goes blank, fully dissociates, escaping my surroundings entirely. But my body always feels it. I remember being at work at the hospital when my coworker started talking about a new documentary on Netflix about a child who had been abused. I hadn't watched so much as a trailer for it because I had already been warned by friends to avoid it like the plague. They knew it would be too much for me, too real, too close to home. These coworkers started talking about it and my body instantly started responding. I asked them softly, to please not talk about it, that it was too sad to listen to. I couldn't explain to them that it was triggering me, that it was causing me physical agony. They just continued on, ignoring me, describing in greater and greater detail the horrors that were inflicted on this child. I sat in silence, trying to suppress my feelings while my body began shaking more and more and the nausea had me reeling. It was like they were getting louder and louder, like the air was being sucked out of the room, and then it exploded out of me. Can you please just change the fucking subject? They all went quiet. I logged out of the computer I was charting on and went to the bathroom to gather myself. I know in my heart they meant nothing by it, but my body did not know that. My body could not tolerate one more word. Every time I do EMDR, 
Mackenzie encourages me to describe what's going on in my body. What do I feel? What sensations am I having? But it's so impossibly hard to describe in the moment. I tell her I feel it in my throat. How do you explain that you feel like someone has shoved their fist down your throat while you're feeling that? I say I feel it in my stomach. How in that moment can I tell her I'm resisting the urge to run to her bathroom to puke, to make myself throw up if it won't come out on its own because it is eating me alive inside? I tell her I feel numb. But how do I describe, with this fist in my throat and this vomit fighting its way out of me, that my hands and feet have gone cold while the rest of me feels like it's running fever and nothing feels real and I'm losing touch with reality and I'm there again and it's happening again and I just want it all to go away. I don't want to stay in the room. I just want it all to go away. It's like she always knows when it's happening. All of a sudden, she's telling me I'm here now. I'm 31. I'm safe. Her words are like the beacon of a lighthouse on a foggy night, so far away and difficult to make out, but leading me back to where I'm supposed to be. Here. Now. Present. My ACE score is a 9 out of 10. My mind may have spent decades not knowing this, not understanding the gravity of my trauma, the severity of my experiences, but my body always knew. My body has been reliving it in one way or another my entire life. Even when I shut my mind down with drugs or alcohol, or any of the vast array of ways I found to silence it. Even when I repressed it, minimized it, and outright denied it. My body kept the score. If you have your own ACEs, your own trauma that is present in your body and mind, there is hope. Even when it feels impossible. Even when it feels like you will never find your way out. Please seek out help. To find a certified, trauma-informed therapist, please go to psychologytoday.com and click on Find a Therapist. Search for your town. There is someone who can help you overcome it. I promise you. You too can find someone to be your lighthouse in the dark.